Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> that was awesome. Big stars. I don't know what. How do I, how do I say thank you? All right. So uh, last week I told you that God had a one-two punch for us that was just amazing in terms of this idea that a lot of people think that God is sort of dualistic because they look at the Old Testament, and maybe even schizophrenic almost. They look at the Old Testament and they see a God of, of anger and of judgment and of destruction and of all of this kind of stuff. And then they go to the New Testament and you see Jesus being loving and tolerant and, and just amazingly forgiving and so on. And people just think, wow, that's like you know, two totally different sides of God and so on. And what we did last week is, is that we, we put that to bed. We just said, no, that's not true. And the way that we did it, and I'm just trying to catch everybody up so that you, we can pick up where we left off from last week, only take a minute or two. But the bottom line is, is we looked at these, these epic times, meaning there's these seasons of time, the garden, in the world, Abraham, the law, judges, the kings, and the prophets. And what we did is we noted that where it all starts is in the garden. That's just a pull out. When I put the big thing up, is just so you can actually read it. Okay, so in the garden what we have is, is we have God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three personhoods, so in love with one another that they become completely, utterly, totally one. Okay, and all of creation can be explained by God who is so enjoying, who's so loving this relationship of oneness, making more so that that can be one with him also, right? Then we noted something, though. A relationship that is forced is not really a relationship, is it? You have a relationship with a boss or something like that that, you know, you may have some issues, but you have to act a certain way because of the relationship. And it's not the kind that God wants. It's not oneness and intimacy and love. It's one of something else, right? So there's got to be free will. So God put free will in the garden. He said, there's this tree. You may eat of every tree in the garden, but don't eat of that one. You may eat of it, but don't. Because in the day that you do, you'll die, meaning you'll be separated from me who is life. All right? So what happens, I'm seeing a whole lot of faces here. It's great to see you. Okay, I'm just, you know, Christmas, I love Christmas because a bunch of people come back and I get to see them and stuff, so lovely to see you. Okay, and you too, Mel, so. All right, so bottom line. Sorry. I hope it's not going to be one of those kind of days. All right. So what happens is, is that you've got all of this. You've got God giving us genuine free will, which we took against him. We separate ourselves from him. We were cast out of the garden. Here we go, right? Now, you have to remember that that's the basis because that helps you understand everything that comes next. Here's what comes next. Basically, different ways in which God is letting us be on our own. We chose to go our own direction. God's goal is to be one with us. What he's doing is, is he's letting us do things like be totally on our own in the world. Thousands of years, nobody ever makes it back. In fact, not only do people make it, not make it back to him, but the longer they are left on their own, the further from him they get. They're going the opposite direction. So then God will do another phase. And he brings in Abraham. He starts to reestablish relationship. But that doesn't go so well. And so that never gets there. They end up in bondage down in Egypt. So God gives the law, the rules. Here's how you do it. That doesn't work out. Nobody's able to live up to him. The judges, basically, basically, you do good, good things happen to you. You do bad, bad things happen to you. That's a good learning device. It turns out we don't learn from it. And then God has to bring a judge to deliver you from that. Okay, and then you go back up and we keep roller coastering. And then kings, somebody who will make you do it the right way. Right? Now that doesn't work either. And so finally it's the prophets where God is is essentially outside the community calling in and saying, don't do that. If you do, this is what's going to happen. And of course, we don't listen to that even though he's proved himself over and over and over that the things he says happen, right? So that's the bottom line. What we did is when we looked at that, we said, here's the point. This isn't God being mad at us. This is God being unbelievably patient with us. Let's use the right word, long-suffering, 
Because though we continue to make choices that take us ever further away from him, he lets us do this so long that nobody ever could look at that and say, oh, I would have done it. (laughs) See what I mean? Everybody has to look at that and say, this is the nature of man to end up away from him ever further. This is what the path is. And so, this is what we saw last week, and what we did is, is instead of seeing a mad and angry God, we saw a God who was incredibly long-suffering, and who in love and mercy was letting you try it the way that you wanted to try it, the way you thought it would work. And he's caring for you and everything else, but then there comes times when he resets it and lets you try another way, and so on. And we saw all of ourselves in each one of those things, and you know, from the reports that I've gotten back this week, that was a very important sermon, to be able to re-identify God in the midst of our failure, not as mad at us, but as loving us and patiently walking us through things, right? And so that was, a, I think that was a, a great start. Today, we're going to take that and we're going to take it to its conclusion, which is going to be all by itself worth the price of admission. But then we're going to see something. And there's something that we're going to see is, I, I, honest to goodness, I'm asking you to do something. In a moment here, somebody's going to pray for the sermon. They're going to pray for the sermon in another church. I'm asking you when they pray for the sermon, I'm asking you that you would pray for God to anoint me. Because I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I've been teaching for an awful lot of those, and so on. And i got to tell you, this is so obvious what I'm about to tell you, that all of you know it. And yet, honestly... None of us understand it, really. And if we did understand it, I just think it's about the biggest thing. It's been a year of revelation, and I believe that this is about the biggest revelation that I've gotten all year long. I mean, this thing. And and I, honestly, I'm praying for you to pray that God would get it out because I don't know how to make this as real in us as it needs to be in order for it to have its full effect in us. So I'm asking you that you would ask the Lord to take this sermon and do with it what only he can, which is to make it a revelation that would be that seed that would go inside of us and grow up to change everything. Because that's what can happen here today. So with that in mind, oh, Kevin Prowlis, this is awesome. He was the first one to go to this, what is it called, Northwest? Northwest Sound, which is the group that they do. By the way, they won the whole region. Their, their whole group did. Mike Hatch was on a quartet that won one of the pre-competitions and so on. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's rocking. It's great. Thank you, but it's not about me today. <laughs> Although I've been in every aspect of what's happened this morning. It's not actually about me. With that, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. Thank you for your just your relentless pursuit of us. Amen. We just ask that you would open our hearts this morning to receive that. Lord, we thank you that you uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. Lord, would, would you speak through Kurt? Lord, would, would you speak exactly what we need, what each individual person needs, and we as a community needs? Lord, I lift up um, all the churches in this area. May we be one. Lord, may we be one as you and the Father are one. And we thank you, and we trust you to make that happen in this season. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Great prayer, Kevin. Thank you. All right. So we're picking up this plan here, okay? And we're picking it up from right where it goes. Now, here's what I need you to understand. Actually, let me go back. All right. I want you to look at this, and I want you to see... From the garden to the world is a major transition, right? And then we're on our own for thousands of years, however long it is. And then God wipes the slate clean with the flood. And shortly thereafter starts the Abraham thing, okay? Now, what I want you to see is that whole flood thing seems like a judgment, right? But I want you to reinterpret even that. It is a judgment, don't misunderstand. But understand the context in which it's a judgment. The context is is that God is wiping the slate clean so that he can do a new thing. Sometimes when God is taking us into a new epic, like go from, say, uh, kings. When he gives us a king, 
and then he adds the prophets, we still have the king. So that transition is additive. See that? We already have, we have something, and he adds something more to see if that'll help so that we can see that it doesn't actually help. See that? But I want you to see that some of the things are additive, and some of the things he needs to wipe the slate clean. And by the time we get to number seven here, not incidentally seven, by the way, in my mind, then he is going to do a wipe the slate clean again. Because what happens at the end of this time in terms of our flow is, is that the exile happens. And the exile simply means this. The people of Israel have been warned and warned and warned. The, actually, the people of Judah, the people of Israel have already been wiped out and never to be again. The people of Judah now are being told, look what happened to Israel. Same thing's going to happen to you. You're on the same path. Why wouldn't you think it would happen to you? They don't pay any attention. Sure enough, the Babylonians come down. The Babylonians kill a ton of them, take all the important people and leave just a few people in the land. It is devastating what happens to them. So it is a judgment. Let's be clear. But let's also be clear that what the, what the reason for the judgment is, is that God is wiping the slate clean. Now, how is he wiping the slate clean? Well, when he returns them, and I'll get to this in a second, but you can see it in the red of their return is what it says. When he returns them, it's only 70 years later, which is its own little thing. But here's the point. When they come back, the whole time in this upper thing from two through seven, the whole time what they're struggling with the whole time is they keep chasing after other gods. They use their free will to chase after the gods of other nations, even though they've got the one true God. And he's proven it to them over and over. But nonetheless, there's still something so broken in us that we go after these other things, gods of fertility and prosperity and all these kinds of things because that's how we are, right? So the point is, is when they go on this exile, this brutal exile, God wipes the slate so clean, and this is so important understanding the history of Israel and, and our own nature. When God does a thing where he wipes your slate clean, you never go back. When he really wipes your slate clean, you never go back. The Israelites, we're going to look at more history of them coming back this way. And the point is, the Israelites never go back to serving another God. It's always about God. Now, they don't get God quite right. But nonetheless, it's about God now, not about other gods, chasing other gods. So you see that? So he wipes the slate clean in order that we not bring that baggage forward, in order that he can do another thing. So what's the other thing that he does? Well, the first thing he does, now what I want you to watch is, we're just going to go right down the same way. See what I mean? We're going to go down the same path. Okay, so we're going back. And the first thing he does is, is that he duplicates the prophets. Even while they're in Babylon, prophecies start coming, even before they went, by the way. Prophecies are coming, you're, you're going to go back. You're going to go back. Now, 70 years after they get exiled, they're headed back again. 70 years. You realize that's long enough that there's still people alive that experienced the devastation of the taking over by the Babylonians. And you realize what a bad idea that is for a conquering nation, right? You got people, you killed their whole family and then you let them go back to form an army to attack you again? This is stupid. Now how does God work that out? Well, simple. The Babylonians were the ones that attacked them, but then the Persians come and attack the Babylonians and take over them and so there's another king there. Now even for the Persians, it's not very smart to let a bunch of people who are still smarting from having lost their families right? It's, you know, it's, sorry to use a contemporary example, but it's like Gitmo. You know, release a bunch of guys where you killed their whole family, and what are they going to do? The likelihood is probably not going to work out well for you either. So it's, it's pretty weird that the Persians, even though it was a different kingdom, the Persians did it. It's pretty weird they did it too. But the point is they did. And during the time that they're in Babylon, and as they come back, the last three prophets in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, um, Malachi, they all are speaking, and the, and the interesting thing is that people are really listening now, because not only do they remember the pain, but they remember what God said, and then it happened, and so they remember. So as they're coming back, they're listening to the prophets this time, right? But here's the interesting thing about what the prophets are saying. They're saying, rebuild the city, Re he's saying rebuild the temple, rebuild, do this, form a nation again. But the whole time that God is prophesying to them, he's saying this. You're going to rebuild the city, you're going to rebuild the temple, you're going to do all kinds of things. But understand, this isn't it. Look for something more. In fact, let me show you an example of that, just one, and there's many. But this is Zechariah, and he says, tell him, meaning the ruler, 
This is what the Lord of the heavens army says. Here is the man called the branch. Now who's the branch? The root of David. So the branch is Jesus. And he's saying there's something else coming. See? And when that one comes, he's going to branch out where he is, and he'll build the temple of the Lord. Now, they're building the temple. So what's he talking about? He's going to build the temple. Well, what kind of temple does Jesus build? Is it one with bricks? It's us. We're now the temple. So he's talking about look for something much more. See that? Not just look for the same thing to happen again. I'm actually taking you someplace better than where you ever were. So he says, yes, he will build the temple of the Lord, then he will receive royal honor and will rule as a king from his throne. But now watch this. He will also serve as priest from that throne. Strictly verboten. This is not okay. You do not have a king and a priest in the same person, period. Why? Because absolute power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Who is the one person, though, that could totally be completely the right king and completely the right priest? God. He's the one that wanted to be king, and he's the one that ministers. He's the right priest, too, right? So what he's saying is he'll serve as a priest, and there will be perfect harmony between those two roles. See it? So this is talking about Jesus. So they're building a stone temple, and God is telling them, look for something much more than that. So here we go now. Here come the kings. They get a pseudo-king. They go out and they find this guy, and you know, he's like a, he's a descendant of David and everything else. He's kind of the next one in line, but you know, frankly, he's just kind of a wimp, and he just doesn't work out. There's just not much to him. Really, you know, here's the point. He has no anointing. So even though he's king, he's not anointed to be king and to fulfill the roles that king Here's the roles that kings fulfill. Lionheart. Right? He, he, is it Lionheart? Is that the one I'm thinking of? Mel Gibson? Braveheart. 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 Also, no, that's not it. But, but you know where, where he runs in front of everybody and musters their strength. See, this is, people look on these anointed kings, and then they, in an anointed way, stir our hearts, and then we go out and do exploits that are greater than we could have ever done on our own. See it? That's why people want a king. And the problem is, is that the kings that they raise up just aren't that. In fact, they're not that to the point that who's really ruling the country is not the kings, but essentially the pseudo-judges, the new kind of judge, Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, these guys who have come from God, they're the ones that have the anointing. They're the ones who are actually following. They're the ones that are actually doing something for our country, for our nation. They're the ones that are rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding. See this? So that's who the people are following, the judges. And guess what? We're doing good things just like it was in the judges' time. We're doing good things, and God's prospering us. Even though enemies are surrounding us, seeing us be prospered, don't like it, trying to come against us. Wow, as we follow God, as we follow the anointed leader, what's happening is, is he's causing us to prosper even in the face of our enemies. See it? People that are trying to destroy us. So here we go to Judges. And now we get to the most interesting one of all. When they get back in the land, they've rebuilt the temple. They're trying to figure out what went wrong and what do we need to do differently in order not to get back to exile ever again? They realize this because they chased after other gods, and they realize that what they've really done is they didn't fulfill the law. And so they become a people of the law. Now watch this. This happens historically about 2,500 years ago. Right now, I can take you to a, a Hasidic or an Orthodox Jewish community right now, and they will describe themselves as a people of the law meaning the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the ones that we're in in our reading right now, in our soap readings, and there's all kinds of regulations about all kinds of things, security regulations and all kinds of things, and what, the, and what these people are saying is, is if we would just fulfill all the rules, then we'll be right with God, and he'll bless us. So even 2,500 years later, the Jewish people are still stuck here, right here. So here's my question for you. Is that where we're supposed to stop? You tell me. Are we supposed to stop at the rules? What was the beginning? Relationship. 
So we're not supposed to stop at the rules. In fact, here's the way that Paul says it later on. Paul comes to it and says, look, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, you, you do the rules right, so you, you fast and you wash and you keep kosher and you do all these things right, and so on the outside you look good, but on the inside it's all messed up. And what's messed up is not just you not being able to actually keep the spirit of the law, it's you with me. Because you don't understand who I am at all. You think I'm just out there to make you do the rules so that you look good. So you do the right things and I can be happy with you and then I won't judge you. No, that's just not who he is at all, is he? In fact, at one point in time, he has to come towards the end and he has to say, quit doing sacrifices. They're making me sick. You think I'm a bloodthirsty God that wants more animals to be killed and that's so not the point. The point is, is that there was an innocent animal that had to die for what you and I did. And we're supposed to feel grief over an innocent animal having to take on because ultimately it's pointing to the innocent being the Lamb of God, Jesus, who's going to take it on. We're supposed to be grieving over this innocent animal. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying, God's just bloodthirsty, so we'll just kill a whole lot of animals and we'll be cool. He'll like us because he's bloodthirsty. See? See how kink they are in their understanding of who God is? Well, they're in a bad way. And we get in a bad way. And the whole point of all of this, what it shows us is, is that we get in a bad way. And what that's really showing us is we need something new. We need slate wiped clean. We need something totally different. We need something genuinely new. We need to be saved from ourselves, not just from our circumstances. We cry out in our circumstances of hardship and we say, God, deliver me. And the fact is, is that when we're in prosperity, we ought to be saying, God, save me just as much. And so what happens is, is that God does something brand new. Totally outside the box. If we can never get back to him, what's his plan? After we've tried every way that we can try it, God says, okay, you done now? Have you exhausted every possibility? Okay, now let me show you my plan. The one hidden from, beginning, from the beginning of ages. And I'm going to reveal it right now. And of course, that plan is Jesus and look at this as we're going back. Look at this. See where we are? We've reestablished relationship just like we did with Abram, who became Abraham, right? So the point is, is he's restoring relationship like Abraham had. But, but I want you to do something here because we need to really deconstruct Christmas just a little bit and Jesus just a little bit in order to understand something. Let's just say that Jesus came and never died for our sins, never did the whole cross thing. Let's just say that he died. First of all, would he have ever died? I mean, if he, if he had no sin, if he never sinned, would he die? No. So Jesus would still be alive today. Right? If he hadn't taken our sins on himself and died on the cross, he'd still be alive right now. And where would he live? Probably have a base in Jerusalem and maybe like, you know, make pilgrimages out and so on. And so we get to see him every once in a while and we might get to see how he lives and we would try and model our lives after how he lived. And how well would that work out? The same way it always works out. We just can't do it in ourselves. It wouldn't work out very well, but here's the, here's the deeper point. What's God going after? Relationship. How is, how is watching some guy on television having a relationship with them? Even if you're modeling, even if you're doing what Jesus did, right? What would Jesus do, even if you're doing that? You see it? So even at this moment in time, we have a restored relationship, clearly. But it isn't what God wanted. It's, there's still a look for something more. Look for something more than Jesus, Kurt, how blasphemous of you. Well, watch. I, I just want to, again, I'm de de deconstructing just a little bit, so you've got to hang in there with me. If I say something you don't like, I love you, come talk to me and beat me up. Okay? Here, here's what Jesus dying is all about. Yeah, in his life he models how it is that we live, but when Jesus dies, what he's doing is he's saying, you made choices to go a certain direction, and that separated you from God. I'm God. You made choices to separate yourself from me, so I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to take what was due you, separation, upon myself. See it? That's why he dies on the cross. He becomes our sin. 
he becomes the consequences of our decisions, separation. And what ends up happening is, is that he dies and he goes down in the ground, but sin, death can't hold him. Why? Because he himself did not sin. He took upon our sin, he took our sins upon himself and that killed him. But death couldn't hold him because he himself didn't sin, so he rises up again. And now, what was due you and me for my, our choices has been completely paid for, right? So there's no more payment that can be done if we accept that somebody paid for it. Now, if you don't receive that somebody else paid for it, then you still got to pay for it. But if you say, I'm going to allow Jesus to pay my penalty, and then he does, now you're with him, and you've raised up, right? But here's the point. Watch. Even Jesus says, now watch this. I'm being very careful. I love Jesus. Don't anybody misunderstand this. But we can fall in love with the law. We don't fall in love with the law as Christians. We never do that. But here's what we can fall in love with, the Bible. Now, I love the Bible. So fall in love with the Bible. But understand that the Bible's pointing to something. We can fall in love with Christ on the cross and we can end our relationship there. He died for my sins, I am saved, praise God, and that's the end of it. And if we do, we did not get to the more that he's trying to get us to. Even Jesus says about this act. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, that I die. It's to your advantage, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. If I do go, I'll send him to you. See it? What he's saying is this. It's to this, remember, remember in the world, look up there. No direct interaction in the world. We said we wanted to be on our own. God left us on our own. But now watch what's happening. Now that Jesus has showed up, each one of these things at the top is being totally transformed into something awesome and exactly the opposite of what was before. Not exactly, but you catch the drift. See what I mean? Before, he was leaving us alone, but now what he's done, the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us a new nature. And because now we're sinless because of Christ's sacrifice, now the Holy Spirit doesn't just make a new nature and then go and wait until I sin because he can't hang around me when I sin. What he's done is he's made me a new nature that cannot sin. It's God's nature. Don't misunderstand. In my flesh, I still sin. But in the nature that God has given me, I do not sin. We're going to see it in a second some more. But look at this. He creates, and then he lives with us. Now, he's not living in Jerusalem anymore. And I'm not just seeing him on television. I've got him in my life at every moment. Jesus is pointing to the thing that he's doing on the cross is allowing us to have the Holy Spirit in us all the time. And let's be clear about who the Holy Spirit is. God. Now, what was God trying to get to? Relationship, intimacy, oneness. Guess what he's just got to? Relationship, intimacy, oneness. <laughs> On a fantastic scale in a way that we could have never imagined. Breathing life into dead bones, making us new. See this? People conceived and brought into life by God. God's seed, his nature. What's a seed? It's the thing you plant in the ground. But everything that's ever going to be is what comes out of that seed, right? The God's seed is deep within them, making them who they are. It's their new nature. He's saying it's God's nature that is inside of us. And then he's going on. I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as or orphans. Do we see it? See, when we're getting back here, look what God's doing. He's taking that being on our own and he's just blowing that sucker all to pieces. <laughs> And what he's saying is, is I'm going to be with you every single second of every day. Why? Because I learned when I was on my own, it doesn't work. I learned I need help. I bent my knee and I asked him for help. I asked him to save me. I asked him to help me. And now he does. Because it's what he wanted to do all along. He just needed us to get to the place to where we know that we needed it. Because if he had given us the Holy Spirit in this way at the very beginning, we would have been like, well, this is me and not known what we really are, and not known who he really is, what he does. And now when he does stuff, instead of me getting puffed up, 
I go to my knees in thanksgiving and praise for what he does, right? Now, watch this. It goes even further because we're in this empowerment series, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to do his will, right? How is it that we do what he wants us to do? Is it us that does it? The whole time we've been saying, no, it's the anointing. It's God giving us himself to minister through us. It's the anointing. So what happens is he empowers us to do his will. But now I want you to see something. Even now, even in our, even in our new creation state here on earth, do you guys think that this is all? Right now, is this everything that God has for us? Thank God not, because I don't know about you, but my life is much more of a battle than I want it to be for eternity. Right? There's a lot of things I wrestle and struggle and fail. There, I cannot wait for the day in which I am delivered from this body of death. I am delivered from this cottonwood tree in which has grown up a new nature, and the cottonwood goes into the ground, and now everything in me is all about him. I cannot wait for, in other words, the day when I go to be with him in heaven. I cannot wait. Do you see it? Now, what's heaven? It's the garden on massive steroids. It's the garden much, much, a trillion times a trillion more than what the garden ever was. Heaven is not a restoration of the garden. Heaven is much better than the garden could have ever been. Now understand something, what I just said right there. This is what God was actually trying to get to. There's actually something more he's trying to get to. But this is what God was actually trying to get to. And if that's true, that means it's good that we went through all of that. Do you see it? When I get to heaven, he takes me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me, he says, John, the holy city of Jerusalem descending out of the heaven of God. I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Meaning I live in him, as it says, and the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb as its light. Here's the image, whenever I hear that, that I always get to myself, there's no shadows. My life is filled with shadows. I wish weren't there. I wish that God was just going through me and there was nothing blocking his coming through and it was all clean and pure, but it isn't, and I cast a shadow, don't I? But when I'm living inside of him, his glory is all around me and encompassed me. And there's nothing that's resisting him. There's nothing that's fighting him. It is his nature rejoined with him in oneness. And this right here is worthy of a hallelujah. <laughs> right? And if I were to stop the sermon right now, this would be a really good sermon. And it'd be a really good Christmas sermon because it'd talk about the gift of Jesus Christ. It would be totally worth the price of admission. It would be great. It would be something we could take it a little bit further and you'd be floating out of here, right? But I told you that when I was working on this that God showed me something that for all of my knowledge, I really should have known. <laughs> I really should have known this. Because actually, if the pattern is God says more, 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 when he gets to the heaven, I get that I have been made new and that I'm delivered from this body of death and I'm all about him and everything else and that is wonderful and that is awesome and everything else, but I want to tell you something, there is actually still a problem except that God fixed it. And it's the fix that we don't get. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, thank you, to be like us. And thank you, Kate. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we know that we've been made in the image of God, right? So what does that mean? Do I look like God? I hope not. Right? Then what does it mean? I want to tell you what, what Eugene Peterson, the author of the message, says. Because it almost seems blasphemous. But here's how Eugene Peterson translates verse 27. God created human beings. He created them God-like. 
reflecting God's nature. He created them God-like. Anybody in here feel God-like? Let's be serious. Do you? I don't. And I don't think of myself that way. I think of him glorious, seated on the throne, magnificent, holy. And I think of me as somebody that I am blown away that he loves me like he does because doesn't he really see who I am? And because of what he's done in me, yes, he does, and so he loves me. But there's, been, there's something being said here and being made in the image of God that I don't think we own. We know it. It says it. You realize this is, the very, this is the first chapter of the Bible. And God is telling us what his goal is. It's not just to be with us. It's not. Let me show you what it is. And I'm going to do it through an allegory, a very famous allegory, which is Pinocchio. And I'm just going to quickly run through the story of Pinocchio. A, a, a thing that was serialized way back when by an Italian and Italian newspapers back in the day that what they did was is like Dickens would do, right? They were trying to sell newspapers so they would get famous authors and they would write these stories and then every week or however long after it came out, the paper would have another chapter of the story and people would buy the paper in order to read the next chapter of essentially the book, see? So that's where Pinocchio comes from and then of course Disney takes it and does what they do to things and that's not all bad. Back in that day, that was not all bad, Okay. Now, now watch. In, here's the story. I want you to see what the story is. And I want to tell you something. This was in this author's mind. This whole thing. It's an allegory. It was meant to be this. Like Lord of the Rings is an allegory. Watch. Geppetto's God. He stands in for God. In that he is making a wooden figure. And as he's making that wooden figure... Look at the way, he, look at the detail, look at the fine, you see what I mean? The more that he spends time with this wooden figure, the more intricacy, the more meticulous that he gets with it, the more he is falling in love with this piece of wood. And he wants desperately for that piece of wood to come to life. And that piece of wood comes to life, like us in the garden. But remember, and, and it's a joyful time, right? They're dancing. This is awesome. I've come to life. This is great. And they're dancing in the garden like we did with God, right? But then what happens? There's got to be free will in here, right? And so he's going to send him off. It can't just be here stuck in the house. So you're going to go off and do the thing that you're going to do. And of course, as you go out there, what are you going to encounter? Temptation, right? And when you encounter temptation, what's going to happen to your conscience? Remember Jiminy Cricket? In the original version of this, in the, in the Disney version, it ch they changed this. In the original version of this, real quickly, right at the very beginning of the story, Jiminy Cricket is our conscience. And what happens is Pinocchio crushes Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> he crushes his conscience. Because that's how you can go and enjoy the things that the world has and not feel bad about it. And so what happens is the world looks really good, doesn't it? When you first begin, it's all bright lights and you got the spotlight and it's all wonderful and you're all excited and everything else. But something funny happens in the world over and over as we've looked at many times is you end up in bondage. And when you end up in bondage, you try and figure out how to get out of it. And when you try and figure out how to get out of it, you start to prevaricate. You know what prevaricate is? It's a really nice word for lying, being deceptive. And you try and explain it away. And as you explain it away, as you're trying to make yourself look good, you end up making yourself look grotesque. You see it? Wow, huh? In fact, if you do that long enough, your nature actually starts to change into, excuse me if there's any small children here, but into a jackass. Now, I want to tell you something. This is a great story. You're going to tell this one forever. <laughs> the original version of Pinocchio was delivered to the editor of the newspaper with 18 chapters. This moment right here where he turns into a jackass is chapter 15. Do you know what chapter 16 through 18 are? The gruesome death of Pinocchio who ends up getting paid back for all the bad things that he did until he eventually is hanged. That's how the story ended the first time. That, he, when he, that was his first draft. Let me, let me tie it in with what we just did. That's the upper graph. <laughs> the upper part of the chart, right? 
you screwed up, you deserve it. And he gave it to the editor, and the editor said, I can't print this. <laughs> this is a kid's book. <laughs> and yeah, kids may be snots, but come on, you know. <laughs> We're not going to do this. This is not cool. <laughs> Which forced the author to go back and start looking at the Bible more deeply instead of it just being a morality tale. Remember Aesop's Fables? You know, we have all these good endings in Aesop's Fables. The original Aesop's Fables all end bad. They are morality tales to warn you from doing bad stuff. But we take them, thankfully, and we find something else in them, as did this author as he went back to Scripture and he looked, and he tried to find another ending that would be true to the story that would have been told up until that point. And what he found was, now listen to this, he was at chapter 15, he wrote another 20 chapters, more than the original 15, telling this part of the story. The whole time that we're messing up, God's looking for us waiting for us, the father, the prodigal son, with a light out in the rain, in the worst times, come, come home. And there's a moment in time at which we do come home, and it is such a joyous rejoining. But now watch. When we rejoin, God knows that we're going to end up back there again. Something else has to happen. This stick figure having come to life still has a nature that is going to go back to the pigsty. And in love, God is saying, I don't want him to go back. And he's praying, and then he does something new, a miraculous. Borns him again. Makes him new, gives him a new nature. See it? And now the stick figure becomes a boy. Not just a stick figure with life, but he becomes a boy. Now that's the story of Pinocchio, but here's the part I want you to see. How did they get to be one? How did they get back to this dance? What had to happen? the stick figure had to become something different. What? Like the maker. The whole point of this is, is that we're not done until we understand that what God is doing with us ultimately is he's making us like him. This whole thing, this whole plan, this whole movement, this whole thing is to do something that is incredibly profound. God is saying, it turns out I can't actually be one with you if you're a stick figure. It turns out the only way I can be one with you is if I take who I am and I give it to you. And in giving it to you, I make you something utterly different that's like me. Now understand something. God has a major problem with doing this. And here's what the major problem is. If he's trying to make us like him, he's actually done this before. We see this in Ezekiel. He had made angels. And there was one particular angels. He still had the same problem with angels he had with us. They're created beings and they're of a totally different thing, level. Right? And so what has to happen is, is that God does something with a particular angel called Lucifer, which means morning star, which is also known as Satan. And look what God says about him. Um, oh, I'm just going to go to Ezekiel. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, this is a story that on the surface level is about the king of Tyre and the fall that he's going to have because he's become corrupt. So it's working at two levels at one time. It's talking about the king of Tyre, but then he slips into this language that clearly has not to do with the king of Tyre because when was the king of Tyre in the Garden of Eden? See? The, well, who is he talking about now? I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. What does anointed mean? Let's be very clear. Adam, come up here for one second. Here's what anointed means. When we talk about empowerment, when we talk about being anointed, here's what anointed means. It means God taking who he is and putting it in us so that we can move as he would. Do you see it? 
Now, yes, on one level, that's the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? When he takes himself and he puts himself in you and it's the Holy Spirit, and when we do empowered, we always talk about it, it's the Holy Spirit moving through you. But here's the part that, we're, that God's trying to reveal to us here at the end of the year as a Christmas present. He's trying to reveal that, yes, understand something. The creation will never be the same as the creator. Don't ever misunderstand that, okay? But understand something else that's incredibly important. God's desire is not just to get you to do the things that he wants you to do, to empower you to do what he wants you to do. He could have done that all by himself. He didn't need you. The reason why he lets us participate in doing that is because when we do what God can do through us, we fall in love with him because of his graciousness, his love, the things that he does, we fall in love with him. And as we fall in love with him, we want to be with him. And as we want to be with him, we are now a safe vessel for him to give us more of himself that we might be more like him, that we might be more one with him. Do you see it? Thanks, Adam. And by the way, that's happening in your life, Adam, in a massive way. We've got a long history, and God is doing wonderful things in your life. Incredible. But watch. You were, the, you were anointed as the mighty angelic. God gave a part of himself to this angel that he loved because he was trying to raise him up that he might be one with him because that's, after all, why he created everything. He didn't just create it to have something to do. He created it because he so loved the fellowship that he wanted to be one with. And so what happens is you had access to the holy mount of God. You walked among stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did. This is Lucifer now. You were blameless in everything you did from the day you were created until one day when evil was found in you. You are rich commerce. Now that's a, that's a phrase that works for the king of Tyre. But understand something. When he says your rich commerce led you to violence, here's what he's saying. As Satan was anointed and had something of God that made Satan, Lucifer, more like God, he's having this interaction with all these other angels, and what he's beginning to do in his own heart is he's saying, I'm better than them. I'm more than them. In fact, what he ultimately says is, is worship me, I'm like God. See it? And that's violence. Because God is his creator and God in love and mercy and because he loved him, gave him a part of himself and now all of a sudden in violence, he's wrecking that relationship. He's destroying it. Do you see that? So God has a major problem. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and God is the absolute power. And when God gives us a part of himself, there's a problem in us. Which is why he takes us through that long journey of learning who we really are so that we understand who he really is, so that we can come into the fullness of what he's actually trying to do in making us like him. So I banished you in disgrace. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned, so I banished you in disgrace of the mountain of God. I expelled you, almighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Think of that. Lucifer was this loved, anointed cherub, and it made him beautiful. And what that made him was prideful. For he says, your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor, so I threw you to the ground. Oh no, your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor, so I threw you to the ground and exposed you. Cast him out of, the, out of heaven. See it? Now what I want you to do is I want you to think. Remember what Jesus said? I'm going back now. I pray that they will all be one. This is his last prayer. Listen to it. In the context of what we're talking about right now, what God's trying to do is make you like him. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in, in us. I have given them the glory you gave me. What does that mean? You gave me the Holy Spirit, God himself, as a man, when I was walking as a man. You gave me that glory, and that's how I walked right with you. You gave me this wonderful thing. May they experience this perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. How will the world know? Because I'll be doing something that you can't do unless it's God. 
They will love in ways that are unbelievable. They will forgive in ways that are unconceivable. They will do things that are so merciful and so generous in the face of things that are so evil. They will manifest things that the world does not understand and cannot comprehend. And what will happen is the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus, in your holy and precious name, even now, start to work into people's hearts what it is that they're being made like you. Start to speak to hearts. Start to sink it into people's hearts that they're like you. That you, you're not just wanting to be with us. You're not just wanting to be with us. You're wanting us to be like you. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. For this end. Looking up, you guys. I know I took you in a prayer there, but that was because I'm praying. This is what he wants to do. He wants to dance with you. He has made you like him. And it is so wonderful that we want to dance. It is so incredible that we want to say, the, thanks, Christmas, right? Christmas is the time when the whole world starts to want to give, right? And that is because Christmas is the time where God gave the most incredible gifts. The ones that we, we think of it as just Christmas, Jesus being born and Jesus dying on the cross. We're not understanding that God's real goal, the fullness of all that it was, is that he wants to make us like him, that we can become one with him in an absolute fullness, in an ever-increasing fullness, ever more deeply. That's what his goal is. Jesus is not the end of it. Jesus is in the process of it. Jesus is the facilitator of it. Jesus is God in the way that God is bringing us back to the fullness of himself as he makes us like him, that we might be one. But I don't want us to just see how much we want to dance. I want you to see how much God wants to dance. <laughs> I want you to see how excited God is that you get to this place. He wants to dance with you. Is that how you think of God? Is that your conception of God, that he wants to dance with you? I mean in a joyous, rapturous, hallelujah, this is awesome, dance. Have you ever thought of God that way? I think there might have been a moment or two that a lot of us have had some thought of God being really happy with us, but do you understand that his whole point, all of that flow, everything that he's done for thousands of years in the history of mankind is in order to get us to a place because he's just waiting to celebrate with us. He's just waiting for that moment where we are now vessels that can handle the unbelievable, the unfathomable, the infinite that he wants to pour into us because he's wanting to raise us up and when he raises us up he goes, that's who I made you to be, that's who you are, I love you, I want to be with you, I want to dance, right? I want to celebrate with you. This is who God is. This is who God is. It, the scripture says, I, God is a jealous God and he will not share his glory. Let me, let, me, let me make certain that we understand what that means. If somebody's going to corrupt it and somebody's trying to take his glory like Satan did, he will not share that. But do understand something. He is all too willing to give us his glory just like Jesus said. I gave him the glory. Same one that you gave me. I want to give to them and I did give to them. Do you see it? He just wants to pour it out on somebody that's not going to hurt him. He's not going to destroy him. This is what he's doing. So I want you to do something right now. We're just, just God, help us get there. I just, when I saw this the other day when I was writing the sermon, I started writing the sermon, didn't even know this was the ending. I didn't know this. And as I was writing it, all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, I'm missing the whole point. He, drew, he did all of this and I've done all, I've preached all that several times and never gotten to this place. And all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh, this is how much you want to be one with us, that you want, you are the God who desires to give all of yourself to us, that we might enjoy everything that you are, and you get great pleasure out of it. And for us, of course, eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has even entered into your imagination the things that God has prepared, right? Oh God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you to take some time right now and I'm asking you to, uh, I want you to 
first I want you to picture God dancing with you. We're going to do something else in about two minutes here. But right now, I literally want you, last week, we got past that he was mad at you. We learned that he loved us. I want you to see the depths of his love today. And I want you to imagine yourself as, as Kara plays something. I want you to imagine this love. Just do that for me, would you? Just Kara's going to play right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Just dance with him. Just imagine in your mind. Imagine who he is, that he wants to dance with you in rapturous, joyous, hallelujah, that he's so excited that you're getting the fullness of what he always wanted to give. That he has raised you up, that he has done everything. And his strong right arm has made certain that you get to the dance. So dance with him. It's that big dance. It's not like a waltz. It's that celebratory stomp your feet. Just go in a circle. Sing it out. Praise it out. Every part of your being. Giving him all the fullness. Thank you, Jesus. Dance with him. Dance with him. Dance with him. just stop for a moment and what I want you to do in this moment I want you to consider that he has made you like him and start pondering what that means start pondering the surpassing nature of the gift that God gives you in his coming to us in Christ Jesus the Holy Spirit speak to you who he has made you to be seeing an entirely new image, an entirely new way of thinking about yourself. And take that on. Do not let anything steal the seed. God's trying to plant a seed in your life right now that will go down and go into good soil and produce 30, 60, 100-fold fruit. So in Jesus' name, God, we do not let the bird come along, Satan come along and steal this from us. We do not let anything block us about how we failed. Last week we dealt with that. What we are doing right now is we are rejoicing in who he has made us and who he is certainly confirming that we are and will be in fullness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. See yourself like he sees you. See yourself like he sees you. Let it, that penetrate your hearts now this Christmas. Receive his gift. Don't turn it away. Receive it in fullness. See yourself as he sees you. Thank you, God. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And now as you just start rejoicing in that, start up the dance again with God. Just stomping your feet and jumping around and thanking God, praising His name, praising you, Lord God. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the dance. Thank you for who you have made me to be. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, God, that you reveal ever more deeply the incredible places that you are taking us. It is magnificent beyond compare. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, raise us up into the fullness of everything that you have. Oh, God, let us transcend that body of death that we might dance with you. Thank you, God. Praise you, God. Thank you, God, who has made us like you in your image. And now we know what that actually means. Oh, God, we do a jig. <laughs> Thanking you, praising you. Hallelujah. Letting it sink down into our hearts. Let this seed be planted. Oh, God, plant it and protect it. Let it start to grow up that months from now, people should be dancing in their souls, not even knowing why, not even knowing how this happened. <laughs> what is it that's changed in me? And it's this, it's this understanding who he's made us to be, who he is, what he's going after. It isn't an arm's length relationship. It is an in him fully, richly raised up to who he is. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God, thank you. Praise you. Oh, God, thank you. The best Christmas gift ever, God. The best, best Christmas gift ever. Oh, God. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Glorify your name, Lord God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Do you have a song? What is this? What's the song? Do you have? Oh, go ahead. Give that. Yeah. show the depth of your affection. Finding that gift has you bursting with anticipation because you know it's just perfect and it will surely be received with joy because it comes with all your love right from your heart. I love that about you. The joy you receive from giving is part of my character that I planted in you when Amen. I created you in my image and gave you a heart that loves, a heart like my own. But what if your gift isn't received with joy? What if it's left unopened and ignored? Amen. The love you're trying to show rejected. I am trying to give you a gift because you are infinitely more precious to me than you can imagine. I chose just the right gift for you to convey the depth of my love. My gift is priceless. I'm giving you what I treasure most. I'm giving you my son, my only son. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he Amen. gave his only begotten son Amen. that whoever believes in him shall Amen. not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Amen. Kristen, send that to me. You wrote that down. Send that to me and I'll send it out to everybody. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. I want to I dance. <laughs> I want to, yeah. I want to just stand up. I want us just all to dance. I know we're not going to do that, and I'm very sad about that. So, God, in Jesus' name, make us a body that will dance, okay, in fullness, in glory. Reach down in front of you. Grab this cup. There are two of them in front of you. In the bottom one is the body. The body that is the life that you have lived, the life that you have lived not knowing that God has made you like him. Not knowing that God has made you to be with you and then filled you to overflowing to be like him. And in so doing, we have broken our lives. So take your finger and just go down in there and break that sucker. Okay? You have broken. We have broken our lives. We perish for lack of knowledge. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we lift this saying, thank you that in Christ Jesus, by his stripes on that cross, we have been healed. We are healed utterly and completely, fully and richly. It is why Jesus came to bring us all that you desired 
for anyone who would receive. And if you are here and you do not know Christ, oh God, let this be the day that you open his present to you, as Kristen said. Do not let it go unopened. It is worth everything and then some. Open this gift and say yes to him. No better time, no better way than to take communion with him right now. Communion simply meaning with union. Calm, Latin with, and union meaning union, oneness. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we lift this cup unto you in which is our broken body, but it is on the cross with you made whole, healed utterly. And so we take together of what you have done for us. Take together, please. Thank you, Jesus. And now we lift this cup in which is the life that you have for us, the glorious, dancing, joyful, overflowing, incredible, magnificent. Oh, oh God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we take together this life. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Take together that you might live the life he has already got for you. All of it is done. Nothing else needs to be done. You don't need to become more holy. You don't need to do anything. He did it all. He made you new. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, we take this and say, that life, that dance become mine. In Jesus' name, take together. Hallelujah, God. Hallelujah, God.